Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is Metapol with me, Cactus. So, there was no episode last week for fairly obvious reasons. After all, the various political and media influences were yet unsettled on what they would draw from the latest election, or even what the result was going to be. What all of this meant was that the narratives that then spread and influenced world politics as a whole, and the effects that they have on very individual political actors, including politicians, campaigners, and entrepreneurs, was still a question mark. And unlike many self-purported journalists, I don't believe in reporting on some miasmatic blob that we don't have all of the information about so far. So I waited until this week, and while some of the information is still unsettled, is not perfectly well-defined with the data that we've collected so far, it is nonetheless a much higher standard of accuracy that I've held myself to and will continue to hold myself to, and I will make sure to give caveats whenever they are due. So without further ado, let's give an election postmortem and talk about where American politics is heading from today and what influence that will have on everyone else. So first of all, the biggest question that Americans have been asking themselves is, what happened with the polling? Why was the sampling so inaccurate with regards to the ratio that were expected to vote for Trump and what actually ended up happening in real life in the actual election? Well, a lot of the research that I already gathered was actually reiterated and summarized incredibly well by another podcast, 538, who covers elections, polling, and that sort of stuff exclusively. And I'm very grateful for them for putting together such an apt summary of many of the things that I want to talk about. You should go check out their podcast, particularly in the What Did Polls Get Wrong episode, which was going to cover many of the things that I'm going to talk about today, but now I've cut from the script. However, I know that many of you will not actually bother to go listen to the podcast, so I'll give you a quick summary of some of the most important points. The vote gap between the polls, the surveys that predict how Americans are going to vote, and the actual vote continues to shrink as more votes from mail-in voting get counted in the United States. It's actually interesting to note that the American election system is very similar to the decline that I talked about in the Lebanon episode, where failure is simply due to ineptitude and inaction over a long passive period of time instead of any active attempt to undermine a system. That being said, the American election system is incredibly underfunded and just not very good at doing its job, so we tend to have to wait weeks in order to get complete results. Because of that wait, there's going to be a gap between when election day voters are counted, who tend to be more favored to Trump, and when mail-in votes are counted, which tend to be more favored to Biden. The other important factor to consider here is that the exit polling or the polling that's collected not by the actual election officials, but by various news sources that have been released so far, are not necessarily going to be fully reflective of the electorate, as they don't necessarily count mail-in votes, they don't necessarily adjust to fit what the current voting population actually was this year, so we can't necessarily draw a complete picture of them. We have to imagine them to have a higher margin of error, than what we expect from a regular poll. There are various additional factors that they go on to talk about in that podcast that are very interesting and do explain some of this effect. 
However, they're not directly relevant to what I'm going to talk about today, so I'm just going to ask you to check out their podcast in order to learn more. What they didn't cover is something that is very related to what I talk about on the show, which is the prevalence of conspiracy thinking in the United States. One interesting statistic leading up to the election was the so-called empathy gap, a gap between perceived values of the presidential candidates and the judgments of how likely voters were to vote for that candidate. One Quinnipiac poll found that 61% agreed with the statement that Joe Biden cares about the average American, and 42% for the same statement with Donald Trump. There is expected to be small shifts based on the candidate's presentation, campaign, and general popularity. However, this much of a gap, more than 8 points relative to their popular vote margin as of uh, November 15th when I'm recording this, shows that there has to be more at play. While the research here is not completely settled, and it is possible that in some world that this can be fully explained by the poorly run Trump campaign, and by, conversely, the appeals that the Biden campaign is trying to make, much of this aligns with basic party ID. Most of it aligns with the emotional attachments that various voters have formed with their political parties over the years. This is something that I'll expand upon later, but what's important here is that we're going to start with a hypothesis. And this is going to involve an initial assertion that may not have enough data to prove yet, so just keep that in mind. However, I think it is certainly more likely than not that this is true, that there is some extenuating factor that is causing this empathy gap that is not simply due to campaigning or due to the candidates. My hypothesis is that this is the conspiracy gap, and there's a very interesting way to possibly control for this and to reduce the error margins of polls in the future. This is to sample by media source, which does two things. First of all, adherents to legacy media exclusively are often much more likely to fall for the conspiratorial thinking that is present in the United States common media, including the cable networks and major print publications. If that latter claim sounds surprising to you, then we did a long explanation and analysis in our episode titled The United Stakes of Conspiracy, which goes into the characteristics of conspiratorial thinking and in the ways that many mainstream media narratives fulfill this characteristic. What also happens, however, is that those who are adherent to newer media sources do often tend to fall for more online conspiracy theories, such as QAnon, or such as other forms of the racial conspiracy theories that we talked about on that episode. However, these do tend to have a higher concentration of Republican-favoring conspiracy theories. So, this definitely explains some part of the tilt towards Trump. Why this is important with regards to explaining the empathy gap is that while mainstream conspiracy theories are considered more valid, obviously no conspiracy theories should be considered valid, there is more often a oppositional or anti-establishment mindset with regards to the online conspiracy theories, which means that they're less trustworthy of polls and less trustworthy of general political systems as a whole. In my view, there is very few effects 
that would actually be able to sway such a fundamental number that is attached to emotional connections with the parties. This is something that gets built up over time and is thoroughly invested in in order to build emotional calcification between voters and parties that make them continue to vote for the party over and over again. What this all means is that there is likely a measure that, while not completely responsible for this gap, is correlative with regards to conspiracy belief, the type of conspiracy belief with regards to ones either propagated by legacy media or ones propagated online, with both voting for Trump, those believing in the online ones are more likely to vote for Trump, as well as in feeling an emotional connection and feeling able to express that emotional connection in the form of the empathy gap. Next, let's talk about the realignment. This is an idea that the fundamental political coalitions, which I talked about in an early episode titled very similarly, is rapidly changing and is involving different groups becoming either more purple or contested between the parties, or becoming more isolated in voting for one party or the other. The major takeaways from exit polls, which as I talked about earlier, may have a higher margin of error, so take this with a grain of salt, is that working class voters are shifting very quickly towards the Republican Party, including African American voters, including Latino voters, including Asian voters, who find themselves in the working class. What is also present is that a younger shift has been happening towards the Republican Party. In the other direction are upper class or suburban white voters, particularly suburban women. All of these are, in part, due to the candidate strategies. We do have to wait further to see if there is any information to see if there is going to be sustained growth in these demographic changes with regards to the long-term voting pattern. We're actually probably going to have to wait at least until 2022 to find this out. However, what this does show is an important data point that there are strategies that the parties can engage in in order to fuel this democratic shifting. Many Republican figures, including Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, have argued that the future of the Republican Party is very much with this multiracial working class. That is the area that they have been making the most gains in the recent years, and it is counter to the area which they are losing the most, which is in upper class, more wealthier voters. In the late stages of the campaign, Trump doubled down on what can be considered working class issues. Note that this argument is actually completely separate from whether he actually did a good job of managing those issues. However, that's not actually important to what is happening, as Biden was increasingly engaging in very fluffy, empty rhetoric, and also in some of the conspiracy thinking that we were talking about earlier, particularly with many of his surrogates engaging in this, including his vice president, which if you watch our debate episode, has a litany of corrupt ties and is willing to propagate conspiracy theories in order to further any sort of political message. In other words, very similar to Trump himself. However, the difference lies in what these Machiavellian tactics are used to accomplish. The major difference with regards to the conspiracy gap between these suburban voters and between working class voters is that working class voters is that working class voters experience a substantially different impact from various policies. 
they have noticeable changes in their quality of life if there are differences in economics. They obviously are facing the brunt of the economic closures due to coronavirus, as they often cannot work from home and are forced to either take greater risks and work in person or lose out on a paycheck. What this means is that the conspiracy issues or even broader cultural issues at large are less significant to those voters than those baseline economic issues. However, what happens out of this is a very strange situation that conservative commentator Sagar and Jetty put very well, is that you likely have a substantial demographic, that is, a young Latino voter, who both is more culturally conservative, maybe agrees with Trump on abortion and on lockdowns, but at the same time supports a $15 minimum wage and Medicare for All, or the United States version of a universal healthcare bill. What this means is that they're willing to support to substantively improve their lives. They don't necessarily make a judgment one way or the other about what ideology suits them best. They don't necessarily think that government will always be beneficial to them, and they don't necessarily think that taxes and social services are always the enemy either. What matters is that they're actually being addressed by these issues, that these are things that promise, at the very least, and have some track record of, improving their lives in a very noticeable way. Note what never does this. Cultural issues, and particularly the conspiracy issues, such as QAnon, or such as those racial conspiracies. And note that working-class voters don't actually need to be on one side of the issue or not in order to understand the difference. You can have voters that lost their job to do a shutdown and are nonetheless believers in racial conspiracy theories who then vote for Trump because they can feel the physical and real-life effects of the lockdown on themselves and on their businesses, while the conspiracy theory, although emotionally potent, doesn't have any effect in real life. Suburban voters often go in the opposite direction. They're often upper class, so sheltered from economic instability. They can often work from home and have the means to adjust to pandemic life, and they're often in more socially filtered circles, and they're often in more socially filtered circles where there's less dissent and there is more of a social pressure to simply agree. What all of these things mean is that there is both less salience of those kitchen table issues, of those issues that will actually affect them, and more of a pressure to vote based on conspiracy theories and based on other social issues. One final note that's interesting is that you're seeing a reversal of what is typically considered the most conservative or liberal principles. That is, the Democratic Party is increasingly becoming a party of conformity. And this isn't simply a narrative point. This is with regards to the demographics that they are targeting that tend to value more social homogeneity, essentially that people act with very similar behaviors when in public. And there is no better example of this than the suburban upper-class voter. However, in my judgment at least, this is a very good development. If you remember our coalitions episode, there are two types of voters. Those that are contested between parties, or swing voters, and those that are isolated to majority voting for one party, or captured voters. Almost always, the issues that gain the most salience are those that appeal to swing voters, which means that if the more conspiracy-centered, economically sheltered class are shifted out of play, 
are shifted towards being solidly democratic, then you're going to see less of an appeal to those culture wars or to those conspiracy issues. And you're going to see a greater centering on actually improving results for voters. While I don't think this necessarily changes the direction of the United States in the long run, it will at least slow the damage that is being done to those who are facing the most harm, namely those aforementioned working class voters. Another interesting effect that I predict that Trump has had is that Trump has removed the gap between the calcification of issues and the calcification on party. That is, those who have an emotional attachment to one issue that historically has been part of one party but has now shifted towards being part of the other side has realized their differences in stark contrast due to how Donald Trump has campaigned. Take the values of the average working class voter who may often support more economic liberalism but is very much someone who believes in hard work very much someone who does not necessarily align themselves with the sort of metropolitan aesthetic that the Democratic Party has, or with their overbearing emphasis on cultural issues. That voter ne didn't necessarily align with the Democratic Party during Obama, or during the Al Gore campaign, or John Kerry campaign, but they may have nonetheless voted for the Democratic Party, because they had familiarity with that party, and they had an emotional connection with that party's branding. So you had these subtle gains with regards to the Bush campaigns and with regards to Romney and John McCain, where they have shifted the Republican appeal on certain issues, but that this didn't actually manifest itself in votes, because many people vote simply based on their loyalty and their emotional connection. What happened with Trump is that so much media attention was played and so much attraction was drawn to the importance of politics in various people's lives, that these differences were exacerbated and the silent gains suddenly became very loud. However, this ended up, particularly in 2020, being overwhelmed by other issues that Trump significantly lost points on, such as the handling of coronavirus. However, this idea of the subtle gains by the past Republican candidates, while once again only being a hypothesis, does line up with the preliminary data that we have so far. Finally, there is a heated discussion going on in many political circles about the future of the Democratic and Republican parties. What has become most prominent is the situation in the Democratic Party, where members who self-describe as farther to the left are in conflict with those who describe as closer to the center. This has already been covered extensively online, including by the aforementioned channel 538. So you can go and just search democratic infighting and you'll likely get fairly decent results. However, the point I'm going to make now has been sparsely discussed, but is not taking the limelight as it should, which is that economic issues and cultural issues have to be separated completely. This is noticeable in issue polling, where issues such as universal healthcare or a $15 minimum wage are often held by supermajorities of the American population, that is, more than 60 or 70%. However, many cultural issues that the Democratic Party runs on, that self-described progressives run on, are often incredibly unpopular, including their stances on defunding the police or immigration, which often poll below 30%. 
it's clear to anyone who can do basic math that what needs to be done is that someone should moderate on these cultural issues and go further to the left on some of these economic issues, such as how Bernie Sanders or Andrew Yang did in the primary. The reason why this is not necessarily going to be a strategy that is adopted by the Democratic Party is because there, there are other factors in play, including corruption, in which many wealthy donors and other political influencers will try to have the party move closer to the right on economics, since they tend to be rich and tend to be negatively affected by said economic policies, which include higher taxes, as well as social effects, which tend to amplify conspiracy theories and tend to amplify those cultural issues that do have rapid emotional connections and that do build that sort of tribalism. Let's delve a little bit deeper into that social media effect. It's important, once again, to make another distinction between the development of ideas and the development of rhetoric. The development of ideas simply involves creating a policy, a law, or a public stance that is more appealing to voters, or that would be more constructive in some other way. The development of rhetoric, however, is revolved around designing something that is emotionally affecting, that often is connected to some of these conspiracy theories, and that generally spreads well online. The development of the former happens very slowly, even in social media environments, since they involve a lot of initial effort for people who want to develop some of these ideas to read a lot of already existing ideas and to base them off of those, which requires a linear growth in the amount of time spent. While there may be some time decrease in the amount of time that they need to actually access this information, say comparing going to the library versus doing a Google search, the growth of these complicated ideas nonetheless happens in a close to linear manner, which means that they don't accelerate heavily based on the interconnectedness of social media. On the other hand, rhetoric is often built, particularly in the modern age, based on mass testing and based on promoting things that have been tested and seem to be more popular in appealing to the base human senses. Now, there's actually been a scientific breakthrough in doing this, and it's called social media. Many of those recommendation algorithms tend to be highly selective for engaging content, which means content that attracts interaction such as commenting, liking, or resharing. However, countless studies have also shown that what this encourages is this emotional calcification, is this way of thinking that revolves around emotional attachment to specific ideas and issues instead of actually analyzing them on a broader level. To make matters worse, because of this natural self-selection on social media, almost everyone is engaging in this mass testing with regards to rhetoric, whether they like it or not. So the sample size of the entirety of Facebook or the entirety of Twitter is rapidly pushing this rhetoric forward, which means that it's going to accelerate and become more and more potent with regards to creating emotional attachments. What this means is that while in the past, you may have ideas and rhetoric develop at the same time, which means that as people become more emotionally attached, the ideas also become better. You don't have this effect now, as rhetoric grows exponentially, increasing very quickly in a short time span, while ideas are limited to the much slower linear growth. This means that by the time a politician is elected on a given idea, their rhetoric 
will have reached much more extreme levels, and regardless of what they can practically implement, they won't be able to live up to their rhetorical promises. This was most evident in Barack Obama's campaign, particularly his 2012 campaign where social media was truly in effect. You can also describe the Trump presidency to some degree with this effect. Aside from this election, there are some very important data points to describe what effect this has had, not only in the United States, but worldwide, which is the culturification of climate, immigration, te and technology, as well as other issues in countries around the world. All three of these issues have very strong fact-level analysis for each. Climate is very much a scientific issue, as well as an economic issue, where you have to weigh economic sacrifices versus future potential damages. Similarly, immigration is fundamentally an economic issue. It's about controlling the ratios of labor with regards to different sectors, different industries, and different education levels. This is an important factor for every country to consider when planning for their economic growth and for the long-term stability of a country. And this means that in some situations, you'll want to expand immigration, and in some situations, you'll want to limit it based on the economic circumstances. Finally, technology, particularly with regards to social media, but also with regards to other large companies such as Amazon, are fundamentally a mental health issue as well as a technological issue. There are efforts to be made in order to invest in further technological solutions to some of the problems that arise, as well as limiting some of the options that some of these social media companies have in order to target people or in order to incentivize other maladaptive effects. Effects that, while maybe beneficial to the company, are harmful to the individual user. All of these are very complicated policy issues that should be debated with a level mind and very clear data that's being sourced. They're not necessarily a cultural issue, as there is often a middle ground that is beneficial and resolves the problems that both sides have. However, because of the rhetoric spiraling out of control, and the solutions often lagging in behind because, once again, these are all incredibly difficult problems, you have a circumstance where politicians are campaigning with rhetoric that suggests that they have a very high understanding of these issues of climate, immigration, and technology, while they clearly do not, because no one does. Moreover, it's led to the calcification of all three of these issues, with, in the United States example, the Republican Party taking an absolutely non-factual position on climate, the Democratic Party taking an absolutely non-factual position on immigration, and both parties taking a non-factual position on technology. All of this not only results for losses for the people who are most impacted who may find themselves in one party, but also for the ability for a government to actually handle and resolve these problems in the long term. In this way, technology is an anti-moderating force, and also an anti-reality force, that pushes both rhetoric and policies that get implemented much further away from reality. This also is not limited to the United States. This is something that's present across the world, particularly with regards to technology. What takeaways that you need to have and what solutions that you need to offer for the future are once again rooted in the individual level. I'm going to do an episode in the future where I talk about why there simply is no technological solution to these inherent effects that people face. This is a very strong assertion, 
and don't expect me to prove it here. After all, we're already reaching the end of the episode. However, what it means for now is that you have to actively take the change into your own hands and implement it in everyday life. While you can't necessarily change the public education system, for example, you can lobby for it. But what happens right now is that, first of all, you should limit your social media use, if you haven't figured that from what I've been talking about so far. You should discourage others from using social media as well. You should actively bring up statistical context, research, and other reality-tied data when engaging in these types of conversations or political discussions with your friends or anyone else, you should be directing people towards a much more ideas focus instead of a rhetorical focus. All of these things seem vague, broad, and too difficult for one person to accomplish alone. However, the very same social media effects that bring out the worst of people that exploit things such as confirmation bias or narrative bias can be used in order to reverse these effects if we apply this lens to all of our interactions. Finally, what you can do, as always, is to share the podcast to give us more interactivity, to give us more likes, comments, subscriptions, and shares. And instead of obeying the algorithms, instead of trying to go and share and give more attention to the most angry, the most divisive content, you can turn the tables and share some good content such as Metapolitics, or anything else that is very insightful that you can spend a long time listening to and that goes into deep analysis. But once again, one of the best things you can do to try to accomplish the goals we talked about earlier is to inform more people by spreading the reach of the podcast. And if you do that, thank you. If you do any of the things I already talked about, thank you. Because you're the one who's making the world a better place. Until next time, this is Metapol with me, Cactus.